one day and then away you go. No, this is something that you live out every single day. And so the, the news is this, is God wants and He's created you to bring pleasure to His life. He wants you to please Him, and there's a way that He's given you a key. When you walk in faith, when I walk in faith, it brings pleasure to God. You say, well, I, I, I give to the poor. I, I've given so much money to the church. I've given of my time. I've allocated large portions of time to doing good to society, etc., etc. And yet God would still say to you, if you're doing it without faith, you're not bringing pleasure to me. It's impossible to please God without faith. And so the donkey teaches us something that actually, when he's called you to walk in faith, you've got to put one foot in front of the next. And no matter what comes, you just keep walking. Keep walking. Keep walking. And so I'm going to take us to a scripture. It's in John chapter 2. It's a well-known story of where Jesus turns the water into wine. And I'd like to pull out five points from this. I'm going to read it very quickly. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, I, I think that might not be the only time a man has said, woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. In other words, it was the first of his miracles. And his disciples believed in him. Amazing. As a little aside, at the end of his life, they didn't believe in him. They believed in him and then they didn't believe in him. They all deserted him. Uh, what's the point there? Actually, we need the Holy Spirit to seal something in our hearts in terms of belief toward God. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brother and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. And so I want to maybe draw, as I said, five thoughts around faith for us that I trust will encourage you. It will have different applications into your different lives, your family, your marriages, into your workspace. Uh, but this is one thing that's for certain is no matter what happens in our country, in our economy, when God looks at the nation of South Africa, when he looks at Johannesburg, when he looks at the suburb, when he sees a little motley crew of people at Hope City Church that dare to believe, God, you've called me to walk in faith, his presence comes. He's pleased by that. And so that's where we're aiming today. So the first point I want to make is that faith is around faith, is faith no matter how insignificant no matter how insignificant. Uh, the thing that strikes me about this story is the insignificance of Canaan. We'll have a look at it in a moment. But where I come from in KZN, and I'm not sure whether it's quite the same here in Joburg, but the significance of schools is quite, I wouldn't say profound, but it's marked. 
Now, people introduce themselves and immediately within the next few sentences is what school did you go to? I mean, I'm 45. It doesn't matter what school I went to. I've married. I've got some kids. I'm doing my bit, etc. Who cares where I went to school? But still, it comes up. Where did you go? Or you, you feel the need to put it in there just so people treat you well or don't treat you well. And, and people are defined very much by the schools that they went to. Uh, people have very secret handshakes that when I went to that school and when they found out, oh, you also went to that school, boom, the handshake comes out. It, it defines people. And, and why is that? Well, in, in, in life, when I can identify with someone, it makes me feel valued. If I have gone to some place or I come from a, a certain environment or context that is maybe a bit more important or affluent socioeconomically than someone else, it gives me a bit of power over them. Uh, or if I don't, uh, I tend to be a little bit more intimidated by the people that I'm brush, brushing up against. And this is very unfortunate in society. Some of you, even as you're hearing me talk, you're just like, you're grisly, you're like, it's wrong. It shouldn't be this way, and I agree with that. But in society, we've got all these different layers, these unspoken things that when you look at and encounter people, they just, they're there. And so, of that backdrop, it's interesting how Jesus, remember, he's just, he's lived his life for 30 years. He's got a bit of a pedigree of maybe carpentry, and uh, he's single, and he's done a bit. Now he's 30 years old, and he's about to reveal himself. Where, how, why is what takes me. And remember it says that he came from Nazareth. So like Nazareth Public School. Like could anything good come from Nazareth Public School? Did you go there? Did you even get him a trick? What's that going to account for in life? Why I say that is because Cana was even a notch down from Nazareth. It was like the absolute armpit of society. And when we read the scripture, we don't necessarily see that. We just see Cana. There was a wedding there. Wow, that's amazing. Awesome. Jesus is God. But we've got to understand that Cana was a notch down from Nazareth, which meant that Jesus chose it from the creation of the world. He knew that was the place that I was going to show my glory. I'm waiting for 30 years to kaboom. It's going to happen there. I love that because... He's highlighting the insignificance of the place. That's the place where actually I can do the most mighty things. And that, that really speaks to many of us today. You know, Cana was part of the tribe of Asher. And if you go back to Genesis, he had, uh, Jacob had 12 sons. And it, it was said of, of Asher that from Asher, he would provide delicacies fit for a king. So this very meaningless, uh, what would you call it? insignificant uh, Cana provides delicacies fit for a king. I look at that and I think for you and for, for me, how does faith rise in my heart? I'm so insignificant. I'm just tucked away, uh, locked in a job that I can't get out of. I am locked in this city. I wish I could go elsewhere. I wish I could go overseas. I'm locked in a marriage. I'm locked with these children. I'm locked in singleness. And it just feels so insignificant in, insignificant my existence. And yet we get such courage looking at this story to say the insignificance of Cana was the backdrop of which Jesus displays his glory.
a second point of faith that I want us to look at, and it, it looks like it's closely aligned, is faith irrespective of the back story. So I've, I've spoken about faith and the insignificance of Canaan, but irrespective of the back story. We've got to understand in verse 3 and 4 that this miracle followed a large error. Now let me ask this question. How many of you would say you, you enjoy control in life? Okay, many. How many of you would say that you are quite administratively organized? Just wait with me. That's not a sin. That's like a great strength. Okay. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a great strength that. But if you think of Jesus' miracles, many of the miracles that he did, blind Bartimaeus, the woman with the issue of blood, feeding the 5,000, all of these miracles, they had very little to do with any error or issue with the person. It was just something that had happened to them because of life. There are one or two accounts where, uh, you know, the d disciples come and say, why is that person sick? Is it because of them or because of their parents? And Jesus says, neither, but so that the, the glory of God can be displayed. But many of his miracles, Jesus, he, he, he looks at the victim and he says, actually, I'm going to display my power here. Not so with his first miracle. His first miracle is off the back of a large administrative error. In other words, there was a wedding planner that didn't plan well. There were logistics that didn't go well. There was someone that let the side down. It could have been mayhem. Someone should have been very angry, if not a whole lot of people. And, and it was a royal mess. If I was Jesus, thank the Lord I wasn't, and I'm not. But I may not have chosen that place to say, this is gonna be the place to display my glory. And why does that give us courage? Why? Because for many of us, our backstory is a, a large administrative error. It's lots of logistics that are out of kilter. You say, well, I've got too much debt, or I don't have enough time, or when everything lines up, and I don't know whether everything ever is going to line up. I sent a message on the plane yesterday to some guy. I mean, everything fell out of my world yesterday on the way. I had watched my kids play cricket. I was sunburnt. Then something went wrong. My wife had a, a flat tire picking me up. I had to go and borrow someone else's car. Someone else's marriage fell apart as I'm climbing on the plane. And I say, I'll get back to you in a day's time. And I sent this message. It's never convenient to do good for Jesus. And I'd like to, why I'm sharing that is not to bring you into my world. I think, I think many of us, we just identify with that. I want to encourage you. There's a, a young man that, he's not that young actually, he's been through a marriage, he's got three kids that are same age as my three kids, he's a very successful sports guy in his, in his life, and uh, he played uh, international sport, and he's, he's, he's on the bones of his backside, he is struggling, he's on a knife edge in every sense of the word, and he comes, he comes to church and he plugs in and his life begins to transform. And about three weeks ago, he gets baptized. And I, I look at his life and I think to myself, if I had to pick one person that falls into this category of there's massive administrative errors around him, it would be him. And yet 
there, there's space and there's hope and there's faith that needs to just drop into his heart and has. And as a result of that, he's transforming around him. And, and why I tell that story is that there may be one or two here today where you fall into the same category. Like, I'm that, I'm that guy. The third point around faith is that Mary was a pillar of trust. She was a pillar of trust. Uh, it's very disconcerting when someone says, just trust God. You agree with that? Sometimes what you want to hear sometimes. Do whatever he tells you. Mary had hung out with Jesus, and she knew a little bit about who he was. She'd seen that this was no ordinary child. And so when it comes down to we've got to fix the problem, she said with a degree of certainty, do whatever he tells you. There was trust. There was hope. There was certainty there. There was faith within her heart to say, you can follow this man. You can trust what he's about. And uh, the thing that, that I have realized time and time again, as I said earlier, is that there's no graduating from this trust issue within the kingdom of God. I've looked over my life. I think you can grow in faith and trust, but there's no graduating from it. I've looked over my life and thought, uh, that was so wonderful when I exercised in faith there. When I took a step of faith there, it's just so rewarding. It feels like you're pleasing God. And then you wake up the next morning and you realize you can't live on the mountain. It's a, it's a start of a new day and God's saying, okay, what are we going to do in faith and trust today? And so Mary, just some things that struck me about her is that she didn't know what he was going to do. She says, do whatever he tells you, but she didn't know what he was going to do. That, that's faith and trust. Uh, are you able to, when you interact with God, say, God, I'm trusting you even though I don't know what you're going to do. She doesn't present Jesus with the solution. I think for those of us that like to control situations, we can put our faith and trust in God and say, please do it this way. That's giving him the solution. She doesn't know whether he's going to smooth things over with the host because maybe that's worldly and finite thinking that says, actually, uh, customer is king. So let's just go and make sure that he's happy. And if he's happy, we, we can't go and get new wine now. That's a, a huge expense, but let's just make sure he's happy. That would be worldly thinking. And equally, uh, she, she might in her mind think that let's just get some friends to go get some wine elsewhere. Uh, it's so tempting to try and control the process, but she doesn't do that. One of the things that happened in our world uh, and there'd be many things. But I found that life is a journey of small faith steps. And then every now and again, there's like a faith leap that is needed. I don't know if that makes sense. We don't graduate from faith. Every day it's faith, 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 faith. And then it's like, oh my Lord, are you there? How are we going to get from here to there without tearing our pants? Because that leap is it's huge. And around a big decision that we were making, a few years ago, it had to do with actually all three of our children, and it was, it was very taxing. And I think it was taxing because the, the end result was one ends that way, one ends that way, the two decisions. And trying to hear God, knowing that God wants to speak to us, uh, trying to include people in on the journey. And having all these items in check and balanced and 
in the end, I phoned a friend and I said, these are, I, I read out his, my story to him and I gave him some thoughts. And all he said to me at the end is, God will speak to you, Mark. I was deflated. I was so deflated because I, I just, I wanted to show him I've, I've, I've gone through the process. Can you see it? Can you identify my processes right? And, and is there a lean? Can you see a lean here? And maybe I'm also found out because so often when I sit with people, I, I'm tempted to, when they try to hear God for that step of faith and trust, I've got a lean as to what I'm sensing or not. And it's not necessarily wrong that. But he said such a profound thing in saying, God will speak to you. And what he was really saying is God is your father and he's committed to speak to you and he's still alive today. And actually this is not an archaic faith that is just made up of statues and monuments. It's, it's a living act of faith. He's a living God and he wants to speak to you. And I was so challenged by that and yet chastised to, to press into God and he spoke so clearly to us through that. Someone said this, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Just children, and he's your father. And I want to encourage you, uh, you know, grandchildren, they're there by association. They get the family name, they get the family inheritance, but actually, you've been chosen by God, your father, to be his son or to be his daughter, and he wants to interact with you and speak to you. So here's some questions to, for application. Are you willing, like Mary, to throw yourself on Jesus without prerequisites and parameters? Secondly, are you willing to stir your faith in the faith of others in a mighty God that wants to shine through? And thirdly, are you willing to trust Him with that which is not guaranteed? You say, that sounds reckless, and again, do it in community. But sometimes it may seem reckless. Right, point number four, faith looks at what's inside. It's not, what does it say? What's inside that counts? I mean, there's that old advert. Not that advert. <laughs> Wrong advert. You very old, Glendon. In the center, Mr. Fenter. Okay, there's another advert. Well, there we go. It's, what insi it's what's inside that ultimately counts. So faith looks at what's inside. Uh, how did Jesus do this miracle? So, so look at what happens. Uh, he takes ceremonial jars, and what were ceremonial jars? They, they had to cleanse themselves and wash themselves. There were these rituals that sound very spiritual, but actually they were pretty disgusting because you would come unclean and literally unclean because there were no paved highways and roads and uh, plumbing, etc., etc. This was pretty archaic living, and you'd come and you'd cleanse yourself, wash yourself, do all of that. So there was, at most, there was dirty water, but in all likelihood, it, they were empty jars. Because it says, go and fill them up. They were ceremonial jars. In the end, what happens in this miracle? At the end of the, the miracle, the ceremonial jars are still exactly the same. They're still there. Nothing has changed to them. Everything that has happened, all of the change is what's happened inside. And that, that hugely encourages me because, you know, Religious leaders put laws onto people and try and change behavior, and it's about behavior modification and, and uh, straight-jacketing people into doing certain things in certain ways, and it's so forceful in, in leadership styles, and yet God looks at it and says, faith is truly what's on the inside. And Jesus takes the, the water, and it wasn't even, it could have even just 
been water and ceremonial jars, but he stirs the water on the inside. It's, it's, it's a profound miracle that takes place. I don't know whether you've ever done the calculations around the high-quality wine, but, I mean, he produces the equivalent of 600 bottles of high-quality wine without a sweat. And I, I don't know too much about wine, but at 100 rand a bottle, that's 60 grand of wine. At 500 rand a bottle, that's 300,000 rands worth of wine with hardly even a word or a touch of his hand. It's, it's phenomenal. And what, what we're really saying here is that God, when he looks at your life, even if the outside is not changing and is just stuck and you're plodding, God wants to stir what's on the inside and he can do extraordinary things with you. There was a little boy that was playing around me a few weeks ago and he, he got himself dirty uh, on his hands and on his feet. There was a muddy patch there. He's about two years old. And he, he was very put out by the, the dirt on his hands and on his feet. And so he went for the wet wipes in his mom's bag. And he, was, he couldn't speak. He was too young. Um, and he was yelping and doing, making noises and trying to wipe all the dirt off. And his mom said to me, I'm so sorry to let you know this, but at church tomorrow, you know, we don't have water at the moment. You know, Durban's got some water crises. And uh, she says, the fact of the matter, this boy might be uh, very dirty still because we don't have water. But she said this. She says, you know that it's not, w- it's not what's on the outside that counts, what's on the inside. And I thought it's very, it's very true that that's how God looks at your life. Uh, he wants to change what's on the inside. Then the, the fifth and final point that I want to cover is this faith fills it to the brim. Faith fills it to the brim. Uh, my boys... They, they love to swim, and the way they love to swim is like dive bombing. It's high activity. It's high intensity. And, you know, in, when you have water crises, you look at the amount of water that's jumping out of the pool, and you think, just be a little bit more placid. Oh, God, give me girls. Uh, it, it didn't happen. And uh, we've actually built a wall now so the, the water doesn't seep all over the grass, so it actually goes back into the pool, etc. But what, what's very interesting is when I tell the boys, okay, go and fill the, the pool up, there's three pool tiles from the top to the, like, three quarters. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, just get it. Because of the shortage of water, uh, I mean, I don't even know whether we're really allowed to fill up with water there. But just go fill it up and just put it up to just over the first tile. But there have been one or two occasions where I've come back and the host pipe is still in the pool, the water is flat. It's, it's like the same level as the, 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 the pavers on the side. The guys have forgotten the water on, and then it's just, they're more than happy. So give them a bit of a scolding, and, uh, hey, hey, sorry, Dad, didn't mean that. And then uh, no sooner do they go and jump in again, but jump in, and all the water jumps out again. And I, I've thought to myself, it's the it's the difference between a miserly, earthly father that's trying to save and economize my water system and some sons that actually they don't see the cost. They just, they just see the, the joy of being in the pool. And some of that principle, I think, is, is what Jesus is almost encouraging us with here. Fill it to the brim. Don't be a half measure kind of 
Christian. Don't say, okay, just enough for, like when you serve someone a, a drink, do you just give them three quarters because you're trying to conserve for, so you can get another drink out of it at the end of the two liter Coke? Or can you give them right to the brim because you want to show everything of the extravagance and generosity of who you are? And I think that's what Jesus is trying to show here. Fill it to the brim. So there's not even a, not even a centimeter left that could be left to chance. I'm going to bless these people extraordinarily. That's faith. And, and the, the phrase that I've coined is this phrase, obey with zeal. Obey with zeal. Fill it to the brim. Uh, it's, it's obedience. But filling it to the brim where you're like, I'm going to do this and more. Is, it's not just obey, it's obey with zeal, with passion, with energy, with extravagance, with generosity. For the long road, I want to be obeying God. And when we do that, faith rises up in our heart. Now, this is a, a quote that I'm going to come in to land on, and then I'm going to end with a story. It says this, sometimes we have to do the ridiculous before God will do the miraculous. Fill it to the brim. Don't just fill it a little. Obey with zeal. Obey to the ends of the earth. I think that's what God had in mind when he said you're going to be a, a going people, not just to your neighbor, but to the nations of the world. That's obeying with zeal. That's filling it to the brim. And sometimes we've got to do the ridiculous before God will do the miraculous. I'm going to ask the, the band to come forward and uh, if that's... Okay, we're just going to, it's right for us just to end with maybe one, one song. And I've just touched on, I've had a look at a story that's well known. But I've touched on four little elements or five little elements of faith that you can work through in your devotion, maybe in your life groups, whatever it may be. Uh, one thing's for sure, the message of faith is it never, it never dies because it's our currency within the kingdom of God. But doing the ridiculous unleashes the miraculous. Uh, how we perceive that, I guess it's up to each person. It comes down to faith in your heart. And I've shared this story here before, but I think one of the building blocks of my faith, uh, and there have been many over the years, happened in, in 2017 when I was diagnosed with cancer. And I, I actually had, it was an incredible journey because it was such a new world for me. I had been diagnosed in 2010 with the melanoma and had had lots of tests and procedures, but it hadn't ever got to life-threatening stage. And in 2017, it did. I had a major brain op, uh, many of you will know that. And, and then I had to, they found that the cancer had spread all over. It was very dire, the diagnosis. And the, the problem with a new field or a new world is that it's like he has a scientist. And if, if I'm asked a whole lot of questions about that world, I just don't know. But if you ask him a whole lot of questions about it, it's like every day. It's common. Uh, and, and it felt like that for me going into that whole oncology space because it was so new. And, you know, doctors, they... They give you information as best they can, but you also got to throw a bone to them. They're dealing with it so much that you've got to do some of your own research. And at the end, 
he came and he said, listen, we've, we've got to do treatment. What are we going to do? And there wasn't any treatment other than one that wasn't the best. It sounded like there were bad side effects and it was very costly. And he said, well, you've got to tell me when you're willing to start. How do you start? I was really in a pickle. And uh, I wouldn't say that this is always my go-to, but I knew I just needed to pray it through. And I went home and I was looking out the window and the family weren't, weren't around. And I prayed and I said, Lord, what do I do? This is a, a massive decision. The doctor's putting pressure on me. Uh, we don't have any finance actually to, to fund this. And I don't even know what I don't know. And then I realized as I was praying, it was the 1st of September, first day of spring. And um, myself and Justine, we started dating on the 1st of September. And I felt we dated for 40 days. And there was a story to that. And then we got engaged. And then we got married about five months later. Description, not prescription. Don't anyone do that. That was just a, a part of my story. But I realized that I'm praying to God. God, please show me. It's the 1st of September. And what happened in that moment of prayer, I can only describe it as like a, a seed of faith just was planted in the soil of my heart. And, and the soil was, was soft. And... And I, I felt this sense of wait another 40 days. And that seems very reckless. I don't know why, but I just, it aligned with what I was thinking about, what I was praying about. And it was ridiculous, actually. And I prayed this prayer. I said, Lord, if I'm eating cheese, it, there's a lot at stake. Uh, I've got my family. I've got my wife. I've got my kids. Uh, please, just show me clearly. And yeah, anything else? And I just felt, just take a step of faith. That's your step of faith. And so I phoned the doctor and I said, you're not going to understand this, but can we wait another 40 days? He said, why 40 days? I said, you're not going to understand. He said, well, what's the date? I said, it, it will be on the 11th of October. And uh, cut a long story short, at the end of the 40 days, I mean, this time is ticking and you're just waiting. Is something going to happen? There was the possibility of clinical trials opening up. None of them had opened up, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, on the way back from having paddled a canoe marathon, because I felt God just say to me, keep living positively, go at life. And as I'm driving back, someone says to me, you know that there's a lady in Cape Town that has just got onto the clinical trial that you've been waiting for. Happens to be this lady, I had house, sat to her house in Peter Marisburg 20 years before crazy and suddenly hope was just beginning to jump in my heart so I got her number I got hold of her I said I don't know whether you remember me is there any possibility that this clinical trial is open in Cape Town this is on day 38 she says I'm actually going in tomorrow day 39 so let me talk to the doctor she sends me a message on day 39 she says you won't believe it it sounds like the clinical trial could be open get your doctor to phone her day 39 you can just imagine I am just, I can't believe what I'm hearing. It's like this walk of faith that I could, no one else is doing it, not even my family. I'm just like, is it possible that God could be coming through? And I sent this message on to my doctor, and the next day, it's day 40, I'm going for scans, and I'm going to see my doctor, and I get into his office on day 40, and he just, very somber, my wife's with me, he says, bad news. I said, what is it? He says, the cancer in your body is more than double. It's 
not looking good. And my wife is weeping next to me. And I, it didn't deter me at all because all I was thinking about was what about this message? Surely this is not God teasing me. And he says to me, I've tried to phone the doctor and I've tried for 24 hours and it just rings. So I said, is there any chance that you could phone her now? And he said, well, we can try again. And he phoned her. And as he phones, she answers the phone. And I hear her saying on the other end, she says, the clinical trial is open. How soon can he come down? Day 14. And the next morning, I was on a plane and flying down to Cape Town and got into this clinical trial that I went on for two years. And within six months, all of the cancer, cancer had been burned out of my body. And... The reason, I've, I've told that story in, in numerous places, and I, I'm sorry if, I, if you've heard it before, but I think the, the illustration I just wanted to make for us is sometimes you have to do the ridiculous to unleash the miraculous. And for me, that was obeying God with zeal from my point of view. And I don't graduate from it because God's calling me to obey further and further and more and more. Uh, but what's God calling you to do in your life? And how's God calling you to obey?